don't know if I've ever mentioned it here, but I, it's one of those things I like to mention, so I probably have. But I can remember an old saint telling a story when I think of Hissom Tabernacle. And I'm not saying that it's not like this now. I'm just simply relaying a story from an old saint. That she could remember, could she remember? Or was it her, like her dad? Anyways, back in the 40s or 50s, that that Hissom Tabernacle was in the midst of such a revival for several years that the drunk, and then would cross the street to go around it because of the conviction, even walking by while they were in service. They would avoid walking by the church. That church was so on fire back then. You know, we have a, we have a legacy, don't we? Uh, the American church has a legacy of revival. The American church has a legacy of being on fire for God. I just believe sometimes maybe we've gotten away from the basics. <clears throat> we've made it too systematic and possibly too comfortable. And we've kind of gotten away from that personal revival. I know during uh, me and my wife's conversations this week, I hope she doesn't mind that I share some of our conversation, but if we're not careful, we've noticed in our own lives that prayer begins to be external, doesn't it? We pray about you, and we pray about them, and we pray for this, and we pray for that. And if we're not careful, we leave one person out, don't we? And that's us. When the Lord taught his disciples to pray, he said, pray in this manner, and if you take the Lord's Prayer and you break it into pieces... And possibly overanalyze it, as, as preachers do sometimes. You realize that it's about 90-some percent about me. Things that I need to do. I need to praise God. I need to bring glory to God's name. I need to forgive. I need to do His will. I need to perform acts like His kingdom that's worthy of His kingdom. It's about me and my shortcomings, and my failures, and what, you know, it is, it's probing, and it's seeking. Do I hallow Jesus' name? Do I bring glory and honor to it? Oh, Lord, help me to do so. You know, and, and, and I think when we get back to that self, we don't tear ourselves down before God. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying when we get back to that self-seeking Lord, how can I be better? Lord, how can I improve my walk with you? Lord, what are my shortcomings that I can fix? I believe that's when we'll start seeing revival like it used to be. Like it used to be. Does everyone's heart clear this morning? If I'm not careful, I'll just go ahead and preach on prayer. It's so much easier when you don't have a text. You can just kind of say what you want to. <laughs> Now we're going to read out of Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12, we're going to read about six verses. Familiar passage of scripture, but possibly not a familiar way of preaching it. 
uh, going to preach it a little bit different. I've never preached it this way. Though it's obvious to me once I really got into studying it this time. But in a good, that's how the Lord's Word is. That it has different aspects, doesn't it? It it can meet different needs, the same scripture. It's multifaceted. You can, you, there's only one meaning. I believe that horribly. I think one of the worst statements that a preacher can ever make, if you're not careful, is if a preacher keeps saying to me what it means to me, what it means to me, be careful of him. Because uh, Paul didn't command Timothy to preach what it meant to him. He said to preach the word, what it meant. You know, so we... But, but I believe that we can look at it in different ways and expose different truths. Sometimes we flip it around backwards and we expose the negative. Sometimes we can do it what I would call frontwards and expose the positive. And we'll get into some of that maybe today. But we're going to preach Mark chapter 12. We'll begin reading at verse 38. It says, In his teaching, this is Jesus' teaching, he was saying... Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like respectful greetings in the marketplaces and chief seats in the synagogue and places of honor at banquets who devour widows' houses and for appearance sake or a pretense, as King James says, offer long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and began observing how the people were putting money into the treasury. And many rich people were putting in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which amount to one cent. Calling his disciples to him, he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury. For they all put in out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she owned, all she had to live on. Dear Father in heaven, we pray that you're with us this morning, that you give liberty and grace, that you give understanding, that you open our hearts, O blessed Holy Spirit, carry thy word, administer to us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen and amen. Here in this text, we find Jesus still at the temple, at least in the complex. Now, we have to understand that Jesus, that we know of, never actually entered the temple. He might have, to, to, when he, as far as a, a religious to offer sacrifice. But, but all this teaching, when it speaks of Jesus being at the temple, he's at the temple complex, in the courtyards. And this actually probably took place at the court of women where the offerings were given. Uh, offering was actually given there for the poor and for the upkeep of the temple was in the court of women. And so Jesus is there still at the temple. And while he's here at the temple, we read of two things that happen. Seemingly one right after the other, but we're not sure. And how at most of the time... I know I have in the past, and most preachers I listen to, they break this into two sermons, right? One sermon deals with the hypocrisy and the false teaching of the scribes. The other sermon 
deals with the generosity and the faithfulness of the widow. But I believe when we read these together, and especially when we realize that they both mention widows, both texts, the scribes, they devour widows' houses, and then we have a widow in the second part, if you will. We realize that actually they're tied together and can get one teaching from both of them put together. And that teaching is this. I believe here we see a sharp contrast, a contradiction. Two opposite sides of a coin. We see the widow as trusting the Lord for everything. And we see the scribes are esteeming themselves and have replaced the Lord with self. And when we look at that two sides to this coin, we realize that there's one teaching here. There is one teaching here. We see the scribes as they as Jesus describes them, he says to beware of them, that they're no good, to not pattern yourself after these people, because they go around, they puff themselves up. We need to realize that the scribes of that day were actually very important people. Very important people. They were the lawyers, the teachers of the law, the experts of the law. In fact, priests would sometimes confer with them to find out what they were supposed to be doing. They were the doctors of the law. And in a society that is largely considered itself a theocracy, whoever knew the law of God the best, if you will, was a very important person. They held a lot of clout. They could literally hold your soul in their hand because they knew right from wrong, supposedly, and the proper way to worship God. But they had lost touch with God. They had replaced God. You know, the Bible is true in all it says, and it is even it seems as though it's very obvious when it teaches that we cannot serve two masters, can we? When I was a kid, I didn't understand that. He said, you'll love the one and hate the other. I thought, well, I, I don't hate God. And then you start to realize that it doesn't mean hate like that. It simply means you can't have two equal things in your life. We're not made that way. We have best. We preached on that a couple weeks ago. Just as humans, it's in us to have a best. The one we like the most. The superior one. We have that one. And then everything else, we like a little less. And so what Jesus was teaching when he says you cannot have two masters, you'll love the one and hate the other, he means you'll love one and you'll like the other one less. And the scribes had gotten away from God and they had become self-promoting. They had liked themselves more and began to love God less. And so they began to promote themselves instead of promoting the ways of God. And they did this by wearing their long robes. They wore a long white robe, kind of resembled a priest's robe. The priests only wore it while they were doing their duties in the temple. The scribes liked to wear theirs all the time. 
so that people knew they were scribes. They say that there was even little fringes, blue fringes. If you read in the Old Testament, the Lord tells them, God tells them to put little fringes on the bottom of their robes to remind them that they belong to God, to remind them that they follow the law. Well, by the time we get to the first century, the scribes had taken that to the extreme. Jesus probably wore little fringes on the bottom of his robe. They say the scribes had grown them to like 6, 8, 12 inches long. They wanted people to really know that they followed the law. They were trying to show an outward godliness. They had believed their own press, if you will. At one time, it may be a surprise to you, I was pretty good friends with Al Woody. And I remember one time we were sitting and we was talking and doing things and, and, and hanging out and, 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 he, and, and we got in a conversation about career enders in the industry, in the music industry and what have you. And I remember one time he told me, he said, Chris, the worst thing you can do is to believe your own press. And I, I, I had no idea. I knew nothing about any kind of TV industry or anything like that. So I inquired. I said, what does that even mean? And he says, sometimes people will tell you you're great. And the worst thing you can do is believe it. He said, because once you start believing it, you start acting like it. And once you start acting like it, people don't like you anymore. All of a sudden, you're not so great. But the scribes had gotten to the place where they believed they were important, great people. They self-promoted. They wore their robes, and when they went to a dinner, they sat next to the guest of honor. They wanted the best seats. They liked it when people noticed that they were scribes. How somebody wouldn't notice, I don't know. From what I gather, all the garb they wore. But they loved it when people saw them out said, oh, wait a minute, you're a scribe. They love to be called teacher, master, doctor. They love those words. They took great pride in those words. But they were pushing away God. They were pushing away God. In the end, they get to the place where the Son of God is sitting there and condemning them. Literally, those that seem to hold the key to the Lord. You have the Lord saying, stay away from that crowd. They have no idea about godliness. Stay away from that bunch. And he contrasts them with a poor widow. Now, on the contrast, we see that the widow, we automatically assume she was a godly woman, don't we? Correctly. But yet, it doesn't tell us that, does it? She doesn't make an announcement. It doesn't mention the way she's dressed. It doesn't mention the way she speaks. As far as we know, she doesn't speak at all. It all, the scripture tells us to show the contrast, is she went and gave everything to God. And you know, that's all we need to know, isn't it? That's all we need to know. She gave her whole living, her whole life, to God, and that's all we need to know. We know that she must have been a godly woman. The scribes fell victim 
to self, but we don't need to. We can fight against that. And in fact, we can go a step farther, and we, or you, can actually be the one to show the world Jesus. You can be the one to show the world Jesus. The scribes had that duty, but they failed greatly. There is no reason for you to fail with that obligation. You can show the world Jesus. Back in Matthew chapter 5, verse 14, Jesus is talking. He says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all that are in the house. He says, let your light shine before men in such a way that they see your what, good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. God has given us the ability. God has given you the ability to show this lost world, to show your lost loved ones, to show your lost friends, to show your lost co-workers who Jesus really is. You have that ability within you. And when you are saved and you've had your sins forgiven, you have the ability to show others who Jesus really is. It's not something that's above you. It's not something that's beyond you. It's not something that in, I know that in our humility, we sat and we said, there's no way I can show the world Jesus. Because all we think about is our faults and our failures and our shortcomings. But my friend, we absolutely can. You can be that one to show the world Jesus. We serve a Savior who is kind, loving, concerned, humble. He's caring. We serve a Savior that was triumphant over sin and was more concerned with God's will than his own. And those abilities are within any Christian to show the world. Sure, we won't be perfect at it like Jesus was, but people don't expect that anyways. When we show that we're able to forgive them and able to forgive ourselves, it, speaks, it's part, it, 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 it piques their interest. Forgiveness, true forgiveness, always is attractive. Jesus communed with God. He basked in his presence. He enjoyed his fellowship. How can we show the world Jesus? Well, we start by allowing ourselves to spend time with Jesus. You know, I read something not too long ago that said this. They said if you hang out with five millionaires, they've done some kind of a study, and if you hang out, I forget the number, but it's a group of millionaires, chances are you're going to be the next one. If you hang out with them all the time, ten millionaires, maybe it was, chances are you're going to be the 11th. But at the same time, if you hang out with ten drug addicts, chances are you're going to be the 11th. We, we absorb who we're exposed to. And therefore, that's why Jesus found it important to bask in the presence of God while he was a man. He went and he prayed. He got alone with God. And it's the same with us. James chapter 4 verse 8 teaches us that if we draw nigh to God, 
he will draw nigh to us. He tells us to draw nigh and to cleanse our hands of all sin, to purify our hearts. Stop being double-minded. That's how we draw closer to the Lord. And as we draw closer to him, we're able to show others Jesus. You know, I read a story that several years ago, this businessman, this man was off in business, and, and as, his, as he was returning, he, uh, he stopped and he bought his wife some souvenirs. I know this was several years ago because in the story, he stopped and he bought her a matchbox. And I thought, wow, I don't know anybody that's ever bought a matchbox. So it must have been quite a ways by. But anyways, he bought his wife a matchbox. And the package boasted that it was one that would glow in the dark. And so he takes home the souvenirs, and he gets home, and his wife opens all of them up, and she gets the matchbox. He tells her that it glows in the dark. So they immediately, when evening came, she goes over and she shuts the light off, and nothing. She laughs. She thinks that he's pulled a joke on her. That he was just kidding that it glow, you know, that it could glow in the dark. But the man he shook, he kind of dropped his head disappointedly and declared that he had been cheated, he'd been lied to, he'd been suckered into buying something. It wasn't until they turned by the light back on and got to looking at it that the wife noticed some writing on it. And in that writing she realized that it's French. Well, not knowing French, she had to wait a few days until she was able to get a hold of her friend and take it over to a friend's house who could speak French, was fluent. And upon reading the directions that were in French, they found that it says, If you want me to shine at night, keep me in the sunlight all day. Well, so she went home and she set it in the south-facing window of the house. She waited until evening. She got the matchbox. She went over. She said, honey, look at this. And she shut the light off. And the matchbox glowed brightly. The man, excitingly, said, what did you do? The wife simply said, I found the secret. Before it can shine in the dark, it has to be exposed to light. And you know, it's the same way with us. If we're going to show the world Jesus, which we we can We have the ability. If we're going to show the world Jesus, then we're going to have to expose ourselves to him. We're going to have to get that exposure so that we can shine in this dark world. Because it's not going to be by our own ability, is it? When I I think of that, can I show the world Jesus? I know that I'll fall flat on that. I I don't have it in my own ability. Every time I try to testify to someone, I'm not the only one, I'm sure. But it's a struggle sometimes because the enemy's going to make sure that he points out every mistake. He's going to point out every shortcoming. He's going to point out every reason why you ought not to be testifying to God's saving grace. But you know what? That's all the more reason we should. That's all the more reason we should. It's not by our own ability but by the power of God. I love Acts. We're going to flip back there. Acts chapter 4, verse 13. Have to give me a second. I usually mark them. And for some reason, I didn't this one. But in Acts chapter 4, verse 13, 
when, G, when Peter and the different apostles were preaching, the crowd looked on, the educated, the, the well-spoken looked on. And it says in now Acts 4.13, Now as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. They were amazed at the power these men had, the fluency of their speech, the persuasiveness their, their words had. They realized that these were unlearned men. They had not studied rhetoric. They had not studied English. How can these words persuade thousands? They didn't have the ability. They didn't know how to organize. Even later on in his life, you can see Peter's Greek change as he wrote. He, to be honest, they say from the he was horrible with it. Barely literate, probably. And it gets better. But this is early in his career. How is this man speaking in a way to, per, to, to persuade thousands to come to Jesus? And then they took note. He had been with Jesus, that's why. He had been with Jesus, that's why. And that's our secret. Our secret is not how well we can testify. Some of the best testimonies are just a tearful mutterances that get a hold of people's hearts they can see when we have been with Jesus we can show the others we can show the world Jesus amen there is a transforming power when we spend time with Jesus not only is there a transforming power that allows us to see that allows others to see Jesus through our lives. But we also can be free from the guilt in our lives. You see, the scribes had long abandoned true worship of God. They worshiped themselves. And this is the, this is the sad part of self-worship, is you have no answer for the sin problem. There's nothing you can do with your shortcomings and failures. There's nothing you can do with the sin in your life when you worship yourself. So the scribes did exactly what most people do. They hid it. They prayed long prayer. I think the Greek is best captured in the uh, King James. It says, as a pretense. As a cover-up. As a way to hide who they really were. They would pray these long, great prayers. They would show everybody how godly they really were. They covered up their sin. They buried it because they had no answer for it. They increased, so Christ had to decrease. You know, the Bible says the opposite, doesn't he? John the Baptist, what did he say? He said, I must decrease so that he can increase. It still shows true today. If we want to live without guilt, if we want to live without fear, we can overcome the guilt in our lives. But we have to decrease and let Jesus increase. Jesus is the answer to the sin problem. We had no answer without him. So many attempt to hide their sin. The scribes hid their sin behind godly acts. They tried to cover it up with religion. But it was no, it didn't hide, did it? 
As you read it, you can see their sin. But yet we have the poor widow, you can see her godliness. And all she did was walk up and drop a couple pennies in. And you can see the godliness in her life. Because she did not have anything to hide. She wasn't hiding her sin. God has so much more for you than simply to cover up your past. God has so much more for you than to simply cover up your guilt. He wants you to be delivered from it. He wants you to be free from the weight of sin. He wants you to be free from your past. We serve a God who gives second and third and fourth and fifth and sixth. And for the sake of time, I'm going to stop there. Chances. He gives many chances. He's not a God of yesterday only in our lives. He wants us to be today. He wants us to forget about the sins of the past. We learn from them, absolutely. But they don't have to dictate who we are today. You know, the songwriter wrote words that we love to sing, words that I love to sing, and no doubt he based them on Colossians 2, 13, and 14. But he penned the words, My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin... Not in part, but the whole, every last one of them, is nailed to the cross, and I bear them no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. Jesus gives us a way to deal with the sin problem in our lives. He gives us a way to cover it up. Not us cover it up, but to cover it by the blood of Jesus Christ. We do not have to live with doubt or guilt. We do not have to live with shame or condemnation. But we can, in fact, give all of those things to him and declare that they are his to keep, and I'll bear them no more. The enemy will always try to keep us living in the past. He'll keep our minds there so that we are unworthy. But what we must realize is that's exactly where we need to realize we are unworthy and we're unable. And worrying about it's not going to do any good. And fretting about past sins not going to do you a bit of good. Being concerned with it is not going to help a thing. The only thing that we can do is to cleave tight to Jesus and to his cross and give them to him and say, dear God, I don't want to bear this anymore. The scribes covered up their sin, their guilt with long prayers. They labored in God's work. They tried to bury their sins. But Jesus tells us something totally different, doesn't he? He says, get it off your chest, make it known. What does he say in James? No, John, 1 John 1, 9. He says, if you confess your sins... He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we confess them, they hid them. They concealed them. Jesus said, that's not going to do you a bit of good. That's not going to do you a bit of good. When you mess up, when you make a mistake, when you veer off the path, don't bury it. Don't hide it, please. Don't do that. Don't pray where you want to be. Pray right where you're at. Get on your knees and cry guilty. I'm wrong. I sinned, but I don't want to be that person. 
forgive me for what I have done. Our first instinct is to run. We see it in Adam and Eve, don't we? They sinned, and then God came back to the garden. What did they do? They hid. They hid. Don't be an Adam and Eve. Don't hide from your sin. Don't cover it up. Expose it. God's not surprised. You're not hiding anything. It may be awful, and it may hurt, and it may be something that you absolutely despise. You know what? That's a good thing. The Spirit chastens those that He loves. It shows evidence of a new birth. It shows evidence of grace that you despise those wicked acts if you were guilty of it. But instead, don't cover it up. Show it to God. Ask Him to forgive you. You know, I read a story one time that... uh, I think I'm saying his name right, but Sir Arthur Doyle. He, he, he's the one that wrote the Sherlock Holmes series. And I guess he was quite a, a, uh, uh, a jokester and, or what have you. But he told a story how one time, he just on a whim, he sent 12 of his closest friends. Now, these were esteemed. Some of them were sirs, had been knighted. These were esteemed, respectable men that held positions in society. And he sent them all a telegraph, and it simply said, flee at once, all has been discovered. And he said within 24 hours, all 12 of those men were out of the country. You see, guilt drives, doesn't it? Guilt makes you run. Guilt makes you run and hide. But Jesus said, don't do that. Run to me. Run to me. He didn't know these men were guilty of anything. But, 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 but they did. And when they learned that all had been discovered, what? I don't know. Whatever their all was. They fled. fled to flee to Jesus. Let him know I'm guilty. I need your forgiveness. Not only are we to keep it open between us and Jesus... But there's times in our lives that if we want to be free from guilt, we run to a trusted friend. This is something we've gotten away from in modern history, in modern times, but it's something good. We should have somebody that we're accountable to. Somebody that loves us and isn't going to judge us. Somebody that's going to speak the truth to us, but it's not going to look down on us. James 5.16 says, what? To confess our sins one to another. I know King James says faults, and that's a decent translation, but actually the word there is sin. One to another. To confess them. To let each other know. This does several things. It's one thing is it breaks the, the idea that I'm perfect when I'm telling you I'm not. So then that allows you to be unperfect also. Right? And when we realize that we all have areas of our lives that we could do better in, then we're able to work on them instead of hiding them. Instead of covering them up, we can just throw back the covers, if you will, and say, oh, I'm guilty also. I'm guilty also. We're not alone in our walk with Jesus. Always, always be willing to confront the sin in your life, to confront it, to give it to the Lord, to be honest about it. We can live without guilt. The Bible tells us to do not let sin reign in our mortal bodies. Now, I know in context, but I'll tell you what, I can't help but to think. 
that there is some truth to this. We're to not let it reign. We're not to let it dictate our emotion. We're not to let it dictate our past. We're not to let it to dictate who we are in the kingdom of God. Our past sins are just that. They are past sins. We can live free from the guilt of those sins because Jesus bore those sins on the cross that we can live without the guilt of them. And last of all, the scribes, they would devour widows' houses. The scribes, not being priests, were not able to take a salary from the temple. They had to provide their own income, if you will, for they were not priests. 